0: Welcome to Writers on the Beach, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. Today I'm joined by Adam Dunn, an accomplished author and editor who's written the Moore series, which includes the novels Rivers of Gold, The Big Dogs, and Saint Underground. Adams agreed to step into the interrogation room to answer some questions about his writing, editing, and process, and how that specifically helped him create his latest work entitled *Fractus Europa. This effort is a collection of stories Adam co-edited with the late Eric C. Anderson, a former U.S. intelligence officer and author of the new Caliphate trilogy and a cyber thriller called Bite. *Fractus Europa features stories from a number of accomplished authors, journalists, and professionals and includes tales of American journalists uncovering Russian secrets in Moscow healthcare workers struggling to keep the NHS system afloat in post-Brexit England, and a Ukrainian soldier reconciling his pre- and post-war identities. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Adam. I greatly appreciate you coming in today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm reading Fractus Europa now, and this is a fantastic collection of, of what I think are really relevant stories about what our near future may look and feel like for readers who haven't yet picked up a copy. What do you want them to know about this publication?
1: Due to uh, the tireless labor of my co-editor, uh, the late Eric Anderson, who uh, passed away very suddenly in October 2018,
2: this project I was, sure hear was that.
1: three years in the making. This was originally begun in 2017. Uh, this is not some sort of uh, you know sudden response to let's say pandemic <laughs> or political tensions. This yes. was years in the making, and uh, Eric was absolutely indispensable when it came to collating and clarifying. Uh, what the, the content of these stories, because you have to understand, the, the original concept was to talk about the decline and the, the ultimate disintegration of the European Union as told by Europeans themselves, as many as, as we could get. We, and we had a much larger list. We whittled this down uh, to just really distill the best of the best. But you have to understand, uh, many of these writers, some of these people were first-time writers because the writers themselves, uh, this is a collection of journalists, uh, mm-hmm. Private investigators, security experts, people who work on fraud—they chase money launderers. Uh, they, uh, the, you know, they're, they're, that, a lot of them are just straight-out detectives. And most of them, for most of them, English is not their first language. <laughs> okay, so we had, you know, we were we were up against the the, the 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 challenge was twofold. First, we had to really work with these people, many of whom had never written a word of fiction in their lives. And also, many of them just simply don't write in English. Mm-hmm. And again, I have to give Eric the, the lion's share of the credit. He spent many, many nights, uh, really all night, um, just banging these uh, stories into, into shape and, and really burnishing and trying to, you know, trying to bring out the, you know, the essence of each story, but also not diminishing uh, each author's original voice. Mm-hmm. That was a tall order, and Eric was up to it.
0: Now, f- thriller writers generally try to rip their plots from the headlines or, or use today's news to predict tomorrow's events and form a plot around that potential. Uh, that potential. And Fracti Scirocco, I think is a really excellent example of doing just that and doing it really, really well. H- how did this collection come about? What inspired its creation?
1: The perception uh, of myself, Eric, uh, and uh, some others on my team, that the European Union is on its left legs. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not alone in that. Um, as recently as April 17th, Emmanuel Macron uh, said in an interview with the Financial Times that uh, this, is, this is our moment of judgment. Mm-hmm. And while he was speaking of, you know, potential economic collapse uh, from the strains brought about by the current pandemic, uh, the shock for the EU, I mean, the EU has been suffering a series of body blows over the, the, the past, really, the, Uh, history has no shortage of irony. Uh, <laughs> that this the, the European Union, which was conceived as the the, the sort of antidote to endless European conflict starting you know from last in nineteen forty five or nineteen ninety four, depending on where you live. Right. Yeah. Uh, it just it isn't working. That, that the what is what was ostensibly supposed to be an economic union and did function for decades as a as a sort of um, are openly chafing at uh, being dictated to by Brussels, mm-hmm. uh, you have uh, a very clear and increasingly bitter axis, not from east to west the way the Iron Curtain ran, but um, really from north to south between richer, more industrialized northern European nations yes. versus poorer, still largely agrarian, uh, or tourist supported southern ones. And you want to talk tourism as, as a support network, that ended starting this spring. Yeah, And no one knows when that's coming back. However, this has been years, decades uh, in, in the making, and uh, again, going back to, let's say, the financial crisis and the, the one of 08 and the one that, that Europe is in now, uh, take a look at the, what the ECB is doing. Um, they're, they're trying to follow our, our strategy, if you want to call it that, of mm-hmm. QE forever. Where's all that debt going to go? Who's going to buy it, and how yes. are you going to sustain it? Mm-hmm. What is going to happen going forward if the discontent and now you know the, the real hard borders between countries? That was another, uh, incidentally, that was another problematic issue for the European Union, which is immigration coming mm-hmm. from uh, the war in Syria. Uh, that's the kind of mass migration of peoples which uh, redraws the map. Um, you don't have to look any further than the end of the Roman Empire for that. Right. And, and you, but what happens just financially uh, to let's say? You know, hypothetically speaking, uh, <laughs> Germany. You know, mm-hmm. population ing- the, the, rest of the population has uh, the rested population has increasingly said, "We don't want to, you know, pay to support Spain, Italy, Portugal. We don't want to underwrite their debts anymore." Yep. So they decide to pull out. They pull out of the EU. What do they do? They would have the strongest currency uh, in the block if they were to revert to their own. Sure. Uh, what would happen if, on the opposite side of the spectrum, for instance, this is something Eric and I kicked around a lot? What would happen if something like Italy, Spain, Portugal, or even France, which during the last crisis, or the, the fallout from the last crisis, and I'm talking 2010, 2011, when you started seeing uh, their interest rates on their debt spike above 7%, 8 9%. Somebody once wrote, I think you get the 10%, you get a revolution. Uh, you already have secessionist rumblings, very loud ones in Spain. Uh, what happens if one of those countries pulls out, let's say, Italy or Portugal, well, if they revert to their own currencies and they want to stay competitive, the first thing they would most likely do is they go back to their currency and then they devalue it. They send it to the floor, which means if you are a denizen of that country, mm-hmm. you just saw your life savings wiped out. Yes. You saw the purchasing power of whatever you bring home from your, your day job, if you still have one wiped out. Uh, what happens then? How do you eat? Mm-hmm. How do you feed your family? How do you keep a job? How do you sustain it? That's never mind saving for retirement. How do you save? So these are the sorts of questions that Eric and I would, were trying to kick around, and we really thought that the best way to go about this, if we were going to look at a, a real regional decline or collapse, that's what we were really interested in, uh, how best to tell that story mm-hmm. uh, than by going to people who live in it and let them tell it.
0: And that's what we did. And I'm glad you brought this up a couple times, because this is something I really wanted to, uh, to make sure we, we addressed with you today. Is that the authors you've included in this, as you mentioned, a lot of them are not, you know, they're they're not household name authors, and and as you mentioned, many of them are are not actually authors by by profession. But um, in addition to writing, and I imagine some of it's a a lot of it due to you and Eric's editing, but they're they've written fantastic fiction and they're very serious professionals with personal insight into the tales that they've created. And So Peter Heather, for example, is a professor of medieval history who probably knows a thing or two about how governments and people have interacted over time, right? Uh, Conrad's a well-traveled journalist with a Rolodex probably worth dying for. Uh, Preston Smiths is an investigative journalist with the stones to take on organized crime in the UK. David Dozer is a 30-year Intel officer and law graduate who helped transition Hungary's intelligence services into democratic institutions following the Iron Curtain collapse. Graham Thomas has lived all over the world, worked in corporate finance, and specializes in investigating financial corruption and money laundering. Nick Eden joined a covert special forces unit, tracked high-value terror targets around the globe, and now successfully uncovers illicit money laundering operations that divert criminal proceeds to global syndicates and conspirators. For a writer, just knowing one of these experts would be an incredible asset. So how did you and Eric find such a diverse and personally experienced group of professionals and authors to join Fractus Europa?
1: We went through the investigative pool. Eric and I uh, are—we have always been fascinated with financial crime.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, Eric, who has an intelligence background himself, uh, was very well schooled in how he could look at any point on a map, almost throw a dart at a map of the world, and mm-hmm. say, "Okay, here's how dirty money moves in." China. Here's how it moves Mm in, or anywhere. Here's how it moves across the Pacific Rim. Here's how it moves between Australia and New Zealand. Here's how it moves across, uh, you know, from Russia, you know, to points west. And we, so a lot of the people that we went to were security and intelligence professionals themselves uh, or journalists who would write on the same. And in fact, point of fact, um, we lost contact with one of them, uh, Daria Sapenko, who uh, was our Ukrainian contributor. I should point out that she filed her story. She was in the Donbass region. Uh, of Ukraine when uh, the Russians rolled in. And um, we lost contact with her uh, over the course of production. And uh, I really have had no luck in in trying to to track her down. We don't know if she's still alive. Uh, She was writing a kind of stories from the Donbass under extreme duress, which the Russian regime, Mm -hmm. shall we say, did not approve of. Tough situation to be in.
0: Yeah, that was something I was hoping you were going to have good news for us today. Was that she had been found alive and well, and all was going to turn up roses. And it doesn't sound like that's the case.
1: We uh, we we really don't know, and it's extremely difficult to get any kind of reliable information uh, out of Donbass right now. And we. Uh, we Trying to move copy westward and trying to move money eastward. I mean, if, yeah. you can imagine. You know, if bank compliance people would have jumped a little bit, why are you sending money into occupied Russia? Yes. I think it's, it's not you know, really anybody's guess anymore. You know, when Russia parks uh, going on a division of troops, you know, a stone's throw from the uh, the Norwegian border, you kind of see the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is those are the more overt political or geopolitical movements which are eroding the pillars of support for the EU. But there's a lot of internal disintegration that is happening, and mo- much of that, some of it is social, uh, whether it's immigration or discontent, or uh, uh, turning away from institutions, a lack of faith in the institutions that have governed over Europe since the end of, of World War II, uh, or it's financial. Mm-hmm. This is a double whammy. I mean, a real yes. one-two punch between two We don't know, uh, and Eric and I, this was not a prediction, mind you. We didn't mm-hmm. have a crystal ball. I still don't, uh, but it was a, what we thought was a, a warning of, uh, of what may happen, and again, we thought the best approach was simply to go to the people who were living
0: there and let them tell the story. And on, on that note, the, everything that's I've read in this is so real, so plausible, so authentic that as I'm reading through it, I, I couldn't, imagine that the crimes and criminals are totally fictional and the cynical, hyper-vigilant cop in me hopes for the, you know, the safety and protection of the authors that every one of these actually turns out to be a pen name to protect them and their sources. But, you know, the being brave enough to live and work in those parts of the world and to tell honest stories about what's really happening, um, is an incredibly underrated character trait. And I'm very grateful that you found these folks who are willing to play along. Hopefully
1: we can, these in other regions, Eric, before he passed, um, he and I kicked around the idea of that the practice Europa was an experiment. We wanted to just see if it was possible to do it to bring this out. As I said, it took several years, uh, but we had envisaged uh, potentially a series uh, beyond practice Europa, practice Asia, practice uh, mm. Africa, practice America. And what um, the, 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 the choice of title was deliberate, it was Eric's choice mm-hmm. um, using the Latin back to the fall of the Western Empire, when in, in trying to examine the dynamics of a, of a massive regional societal collapse, mm-hmm. of going back to the best example we in the Western world know of, which is the Western Roman Empire, which had been around for so long, the best part of a thousand years, everybody simply assumed it would go on forever, Yes. until it yeah. didn't.
0: Yeah, and that, that is, Really, the yardstick by which you know we we measure our relative success, right? Is you know, well, you know, we're not Rome isn't yet burning here in America, so we should be fine. And that that I don't think is the truth. I, I think that you know there are a lot of parallels historically between what has taken down empires over time and what we're seeing across societies, but especially here in the in the U.S. And I I think the the quotes with which you've opened and closed Fractura Europa really convey a sense of, a dismal sense of where our societies are headed if we don't change this trajectory?
1: Well, the, it's also the, the, the sort of, I guess, modifying, uh, a somewhat tarnished belief, um, no accident that Eric chose Nietzsche for, uh, for the opening quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I studied Nietzsche myself, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on him. And, um, uh, this is when I when I mentioned distrust of and the turning away from the institutions earlier. Uh, that's really what comes through a lot in mm-hmm. practice uh, because that's what is happening we see across the EU, and you can see it in the rise of you know so-called uh, the populist movements. But basically, in a hardening of political stances, um, hardening of views towards immigrants, mm-hmm. um, strengthening of borders. Uh, I mean, really, it just what what was always in Europe the danger, uh, particularly from the right, uh, of this kind of xenophobia, which mm-hmm. has at times erupted into just open carnage. Yes. Uh, several times uh, over the, the, the course of the century, uh, that 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 virulence mm-hmm. can be seen as coming back again, and it always. Always is presaged by economic extremes. Economic extremes always breed social and political ones. Always, pick any region, yes. in, of any time period, anywhere in the world. Eric and I firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. We see it here. Uh, this, you know, uh, some other journalist. One of the the, the other uh, person to whom this volume is dedicated was the uh, Italian journalist Doriano Falacci, uh who decades ago was sounding the warning bell of what what potentially lay in store for the European project.
0: You know, for me, I, I think sociologically, right, humans are hardwired to identify us versus them. And over time, our definitions, respective definitions of us versus them for our own safety and our own uh, social structure has changed. But still, we still want to look at other people and quickly make an assessment of are they dangerous? Are they safe? Are they an ally? And in a place like Europe, as you mentioned, it, it being a, a patchwork quilt, um, there are so many different cultures, ethnicities, nationalities in such, you know, a relatively proximal space. And a lot of their us versus them still uh, resonates at a much more local level than we're accustomed to here in the US. It would be, you know, as if we were, you know, so focused on us being Arizonans, New Mexicans, Texans versus a, a national identity. And, you know, I think as society, encounters trouble, especially financially, as you mentioned, right? Desperate people do desperate things. And in times of, of good um, uh, finances, in times of surplus, people are much more generous. But when things get desperate, those us versus them groups get much smaller and much more narrow, and and suddenly outsiders are no longer welcome. Well, uh,
1: outsiders uh, outsiders can be viewed with a rising tide of suspicion. But again, going back to the financial roots of this, Um, Let's take the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Uh, China was Uh um, stretching the BRI ever west where they pretty much uh, accomplished that already around the Pacific Rim. But they wanted to take that through Hungary, they wanted to take that through Poland, they wanted to take that through Italy, and um, really the only thing that was stopping them uh, at this point. you have all of these debtor nations saying, wait a minute, we can't pay this. This, this was basically calling in the due date a lot sooner. Yes, uh, They were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, we, we can't do this. Yeah, uh, an interesting geopolitical sort of chess move was Russia sending uh, relief aid into Italy via military troops. That was the first time Russian troops actually set foot on Italian soil. Uh, but they were bringing relief aid. We yes. love you, Italy. We love yes. you, Italy. And, and, yeah. and sort of did a, a sort of End run around uh, China, which had steadily been marching westward on a tide of uh, very freely issued debt. Um, You know, we'll Mm -hmm. build your infrastructure, sure. You know, we just, uh, you know, sign here and Mm we'll give you generous 99 year terms or anything, but sign on a lot. Don't look too close to the fine print. And suddenly, when the global economy, when the global machine stops, suddenly you can't continue with the issuance of that debt. Now you start wondering, the people who have taken it on suddenly start wondering how it is that they're going to pay it back. And they say, wait a minute, now they start looking at that fine print. Now (laughs) now you start getting that distrust of outsiders Mm -hmm. along financially mapped out routes, uh, growing and clamoring and and really rising to the level, to the sovereign level. And again, um, this is where, Unfortunately, if, uh, if cooler heads do not prevail, that's the sort of thing that can really inflame uh, passions. When, when the cooler heads don't prevail, when, uh, when passions take over, mm-hmm. uh, after all, emotions are, are very quick and yes. very easy to go with. Uh, they don't require the effort of rational discourse. Uh, and you can ask that kid in 1914 shot a guy named uh, uh, Franz Ferdinand. Yes. Uh, that's what leads yeah. to very very, big, <laughs> very dangerous spillover effect. I am hoping that that will not be the case here, but I am also very, very concerned about what kind of picture this has for a historically <sighs> internecine, uncomfortable uh, environment. Um, you, I, I could not count the history of the wars in Europe fought mm-hmm. back to ancient times. I, I certainly don't have that many fingers. And I, I think I've mm-hmm. run out of paper before I could map them all out. Yes. Uh, I do know that they have got Increasingly larger and bloodier, Uh, and the the body that always always pays the price is the civilian body. Yes, they're the ones who are who are caught in the middle. Look at the body counts of World Wars One and Two. Look at the Thirty Years' War, which was the bloodiest conflict on the European the Eurasian landmass up until the World Wars of the twentieth century. And and you have, I mean, look at what happened to the the peninsula of Italy once the, the, the once the one of the most fertile agricultural wonders of uh, Western Europe. Look at what happened when uh, when Byzantium tried to reclaim uh, that. I mean, you've got mass starvation and wreckage of the land up and down the, the, the peninsula. Again, this is this is hatred leading to violence on a sovereign level. That's when you get carnage, it becomes biblical. Yeah, that's what I desperately would like to see avoided if cooler heads can prevail. And if the European project can adapt uh, to Move beyond these very, very serious and very complex financial shocks, uh, and it just becomes increasingly difficult under what the EU was originally conceived of and structured as. It becomes very difficult to maintain that structure. Yes. I think Brussels is trying very hard to do that right now. Uh, I think the ECB is trying very hard to do that right now, and I think it becomes. Increasingly and exponentially difficult. Try to keep all the balls in the air when, uh, when you're trying to inflate your way out of it. Um, there is another European thinker and writer, uh, long dead, but um, I think people would be wise to consult him. And that was the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek, who warned of the dangers of living by fiat currency.
0: Now, on that note, of wanting to get you know these very specific concerns out for public view in, in a you know, fictional sense from folks who were actually living there and being an accomplished author and editor yourself. I wonder what the experience was like for you in trying to work with these folks, these authors to tell their stories and give them, you know, constructive criticism and guidance without injecting your own style and voice into their tale.
1: Uphill all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very, very tough fight. Uh, It's always tough working with an author, even professional writers. Who the longer they're at it, the more uh, titles they have to their uh, under their belt. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes the, the bigger their egos tend to get, mm-hmm. and they cannot stand, especially those writers who um, they, 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 they they face that pitfall that, um, that pro writers do, which is they fall in love with their own language. Yes, and. Uh, that's always something that you have to struggle against because it's it's not always easy for people to take criticism, which is why those on the publishing side of things always you always have multiple eyes. You have the the editor, the line editor, the copy editor, the proofreader, and the, you know the, you always have the fresh eyes uh, because you need it because you need that objectivity. Uh, any pitfall for any writer of any type of writing faces the uh, the, the problem of proximity when you're inside your work. You get so far inside it, you can't see outside of it. You can't detach yourself. Uh, sometimes the best thing, I, I tell writers, sometimes the best thing you can do, uh, you write for so many you know, hours, get up, go outside, take a walk, go away for a couple of hours, do something else, get your mind someplace else, uh, and then come back to it when you're, you're fresh, you're detached, you're cool, and you're objective. That becomes very hard for the, somebody to do particularly with short fiction as a writing form, which is surprisingly difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the people that we have worked with they've written novels they've written you know uh, journalism screenplays but the short story is an elusive and very very difficult target to hit. Uh, Eric knew this uh, and Eric had uh, one, two, three, four, five, I, I think he was six and six both novels six works each of fiction and nonfiction published uh, and the, the, the short story um, that drove him it's of a wall. Uh, it's a very difficult form even for experienced writers mm-hmm. and when you get writers who are very new to the form, sometimes new to fiction in general, yes it can be a tall order and sometimes you, um, sometimes you hold their hand and sometimes it's more a matter of tough love, uh, but ultimately you pull rank. Um, mm-hmm. You are the publisher this is, this is how it needs to be but if you can at least make your argument plausible, then you bridge the gap.
0: I wonder, leaning on your expertise and composition skill set, how how do you as an author blend authenticity, realism, and enough fictional elements to allow readers the experience that that they're expecting, that they're paying for?
1: Well, when I write my own books, uh, I have one goal above all, which is plausibility. However, to reach that goal, uh, I, I don't let my research, and I do quite a lot of it, um, I do my best not to let the research overwhelm the story. Get your facts straight, but don't let the facts drown the flow mm-hmm. of the story. And that is that can be a very tough road to hoe uh, until you've done it for a while. The details are support, their background, their verbal color. In this case, they are prose mm-hmm. color, and you can't let that excess verbiage, Become didactic because then you're just going to lose the reader. Your eyes slide off the page. Yes. No one wants to read a shopping list unless you're in a grocery store. Yeah. And it, you, it, that is something also that you try to keep writers focused on so that the story can move forward and take the reader along with it rather than bogging them down with the, the weight of the detail. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky. Uh, it's, and and I, I find myself falling into that trap all the time, which is why I try to get fresh eyes on anything I write. And get away from it for a little bit. Let somebody else take a look. Get my head someplace else, and then come back and be able to look at it. Because if that emotional attachment to your own writing gets too strong, you're never going to be able to take criticism. You're never going to be able to to shape it to hone it. And if you get stuck, as writers often do, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to get over it.
0: When did you know that you wanted to write professionally, and when did you first realize that you could write something other people wanted to read? I don't know. I could stories as far
1: back as I can remember. Literally, I remember my mother collected uh, stuff that I'd written as far back as first or second grade. Wow. But uh, professionally, which is how <laughs> <both> told my parents that <laughs> you really want to do that, kid? Um, <laughs> it's, it's something that I started doing. I had worked in publishing. I'm one of the walking wounded of the publishing industry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I did it when I got out of school because I figured if I was going to sell anything, I wanted to sell books. But I burned out after a few years of working 100 hours a week for no money. Yeah. And often in toxic environments. And I started writing on my own when I went on my own in 1998. And I started doing what just came naturally first writing book reviews, and then that led to author interviews, and that led to features, which led to journalism and so on and so forth. And I did that for a number of years until I realized that, well, number one, I wanted to get some books out into the marketplace and have them earning uh, for me because I was thinking about getting married and buying a home and so on and so forth. But also, I didn't want to write for other people. I wanted to, I, I did. I was tired of covering other people's stories. Yes. I wanted to write my own. And I was writing a four-part news series. This was back in 2005. Uh, it was on uh, South Asian cab drivers in New York's yellow taxi cab fleet.
2: Hmm.
1: And this was 2005 after Katrina had sent gas prices up over from around 7 or $8 a gallon. Wow. Drivers were paying the price for that. I was writing for an Indian news portal. And I got this idea of, a cop in a cab, and uh, how I wanted to spin that out. but I, 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 I And I did start to, to grow, but I had a lot of threads and no particular cloth. Uh, that began in about 2006. In 2007, the bottom fell out of the real estate market. But the following year, the bottom fell out of the world economy. Mm-hmm. And I had my series. I realized I didn't just have one book, I had a whole <laughs> series of books, and I'm currently working on the fourth installment. Uh, this was what I saw as the dynamics of collapse happening here, right mm-hmm. here in America where I live. Uh, and it was happening in front of me in real time. I wrote my first book during the crash of 08, just watching uh, the, the, the the ticker while I was putting my notes together. And that to me, that, that was the defining theme. I thought of, if not my generation, certainly for me. Mm -hmm. and I wanted to continue it. And I began looking around at the other dynamics of collapse because I saw how that collapse rippled out through the world. Yes, through Europe. Yes, through Asia. Yes, Africa, the emerging economies and so on and so forth. And that dynamic, uh, I realized, unfortunately, doesn't go out of style. Yes. History is littered with them. And uh, as a matter of fact, I recently discovered a great podcast called The Fall of Civilization and uh, English. And I want to reach out to mm-hmm. the writer of that, an English novelist, uh, who's behind those. And he traces uh, certain historical points of collapse, which, being a, a student of history myself, I I could cotton to immediately because mm-hmm. he was he was just touching on stuff that I've been reading about all my life. Uh, the Bronze Age collapsed. Uh, you know, the the the, the collapse of of uh, ancient Egypt, of the fall of uh, the Roman Empire, you know, the passing of Hellenic civilization, and so on, and just it, on and on and on. Depending on where you look, you will always find those because, unfortunately, humans tend to repeat their own mistakes. <laughs> and yes. although things change, technologies may change. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, some of the underpinning dynamics of society do not. And of uh, Again, it sounds sound like a broken record, but going back to the financial roots mm-hmm. uh, of such collapses, a lot of the time this does uh, happen, no matter what stage of economic development you may be in. Just to go back to the fall of the Roman Empire, one of the contributing factors, uh, as is documented, is that the Romans progressively devalued their currency and deliberately inflated it to cover the rising cost of maintaining the empire and paying the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, that led to, ultimately, a distrust of and turning away from the currency. People didn't trust it anymore. And it became increasingly difficult as to pay a rising, and service a rising mountain of debt with a diluted deal currency.
0: Yeah. Sound it, familiar? Uh, yeah. And, you know, for me, you know, cops are generally pointed to as like the leading edge of a government. But I would argue that equal to that is its currency stability and reputation. And um, the, you know, having a, an ill-gotten police force is, is, is a dangerous thing, but having a currency that no one around the world or in their own populace trust will destabilize everything very quickly.
1: And I repeat, does that sound familiar? <laughs> around you now?
0: More than a bit. Most writers that I know are also avid readers, and I wonder what you have open on your Kindle or on your nightstand this week.
1: Uh, Shepard's Guide to Unmanned Military Vehicles.
0: I did, would not have predicted that.
1: <laughs> I'm a big believer in, uh, I, I should say, a very avid fan of drone technology. Mm-hmm. And my next book is going to involve what I see the next wave of drone tech looking like and and being used for, and no, it's not friendly.
0: Yeah. No, there, there, there I have yet to find anyone um, who isn't trying to sell me something, who has a positive story about how our uh, future robotics and AI experience is going to go.
1: Oh, well, actually, I, I should counterbalance that somewhat. Um, this is for my, my next book. Uh, I do see uh, some very, very positive developments using drone technology in agriculture Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: in the form of precision irrigation, fertilization, um, uh, organic pest control, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, minimizing resource allocation for optimal yield. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's all across the board, whether uh, it's it's, it's plant-based, whether you're, you're, uh, you know, applying, let's say, computer-controlled drip feed technology. Across root systems instead of just turning a center pivot on and spraying a few million gallons around a field for a week,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, or aero farming, uh, or uh, aquaculture, uh, so on. Basically, ways that we can get a better handle on our own, on locking in our own food sources. Mm -hmm. And we can leverage technology to do that, I think, very effectively, and people have. Uh, To the point where you are now seeing a sort of decoupling for the first time, I think, almost ever, uh, of the process of raising food from the muscle power needed to do it, whether that muscle is human or animal. Uh, And you're even starting to pull machines out of it. Machines will be part of the equation, but the machines are now less important than the computer brains, which are controlling them. Really interesting developments going on with, uh, with what has uh, and called robo farming. Yes. Uh, you got to you got to take a good hard look at um, at the social implications of that. What happens to the human farmers uh, who have been hitherto working the land? What happens to those people? What happens to those jobs? But you can also ask the same question, which I did with my books and with uh, with my show. Uh, what happens to all those cab drivers once the uh, once the drone cabs get here? And the drone mm-hmm. cabs, by there are yes. several companies which have already been road testing uh, robo-taxis, both terrestrial and aerial. Like to think the answer is yes, with enough foresight, proper planning, mm-hmm. and financing. And that's what OMB's offices of management and budget around municipalities and counties and states are for, is for just that kind of job training, which there's historical precedence for this, by the way, uh, in the, the crisis of 08, uh, the Republic of Ireland, South Ireland, uh, which was, had been experiencing a construction boom. Uh, suddenly, found all of these construction workers out of work, and faced with a you know a very heavy load on their unemployment uh, system, uh, they undertook a pretty bold and successful program of retraining. So that the and they used tax funds, they used federal funds to do it. But the bricklayer became a computer programmer, and the you know the roofer became a, a technician or a mechanic, and so on and so forth. And they kept people at work. They retooled the human workforce to, you know, for their new economy. They adapted to the situation. That is what is called for here, uh, whether it's going to be in Europe, whether it's going to be in Asia emerging markets, or whether it's going to be right here in the United States. I hope it can be... I know it can be done. Mm-hmm. I have no way of knowing if it will be done.
0: As, a, as an author, I really enjoy reading books through a couple times, first time for fun, and then second time going through and, and breaking the thing apart and tearing it down to study the, the author's craft. Uh, what are a few novels that you think thriller authors should study to improve their craft and their storytelling?
1: Kingdom of Shadows by Alan Furst. Uh, let me see. Uh, oh, uh, Coffin for Demetrios by Eric Gambler. Oh yeah, uh, most fiction by um, by Robert Wilson. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, let's see. Well, um, uh, you want to throw Thomas Harris into the mix? Oh
2: yeah, of course. And
1: yeah. um, let's see. Uh, John Sanford, Nat camp mm-hmm. and uh, one of my favorites, not a thriller writer least procedural writer, but uh, the great Joseph Lombaugh Yes. and of course the late great Elmore Leonard. Um, Elmore Leonard and Wambaugh really make that list along with, I, I would put Carl hyacin in on that list mm-hmm. as well, because they employ humor, which is a vital tool. Uh, when you're going to write about the dark side of things, whether it's the city or the psyche, uh, you want to have a little levity to counterbalance things, mm-hmm. because writers can fall into the trap of Writers, uh, writing of the solitary craft and if you stay in the darkness for too long you might not be able to find the light switch yes. uh, that has happened to writers uh, it happened to the late great Iris Chang, author of The Rape of Nanking*. I had the good fortune to interview her uh, right after the book came out I mean this is a woman in her late 20s I believe, maybe she maybe she was 30 at the time, she had this huge historical bestseller and it was, it was number one bestseller and then she sat in her car one day and blew her head off wow she had been working on a book, as I recall, about the Bataan Death March. Wow. So that was a very, very dark book to be followed by a very, very dark book. Mm-hmm. And I have often thought of her as someone who spent perhaps too much time in darkness. Uh, or she's a, she's a sort of warning, I think, to writers who spend too much time uh, in darkness and what where that darkness ultimately leads. Nietzsche, who Erica put in the book, is mm-hmm. in, in the uh, epigraph is another example, as is uh, probably the godfather of all American mystery and crime fiction, Edgar
0: Allan Poe. Yes. I do enjoy ending the show with hypotheticals, Adam, and I'd like to pose something to you a little bit akin to your Fractus Europa collection. Uh, Let's say that you're an investigative journalist working in Moscow, and you start pulling at threads maybe just a couple weeks ago that seem to have revealed hidden connections that show Uh, let's say, maybe a Russian organized crime syndicate has secretly infiltrated the highest levels of the European Union's regulatory and banking oversight committees. You're convinced that you're being followed, but you're determined to stay in Moscow to dig up enough evidence to bring this investigation to light. What I want to know is this. If you could tap in any two fictional investigators, detectives, assassins, covert agents, or revenge artists, uh, to help you survive this and get your story out, who do you bring into your fight?
1: You would probably want the greatest investigator ever put to paper, which is Sherlock Holmes. And you would want him to have the backup of one of, I think, the great unsung but commercially wildly successful Detective fiction writers of a very particular nature, and that's Dick Marshenko, author of the Rogue <laughs> Warrior series, founder of SEAL Team Six.
2: Yes. Because <laughs> if a... you
1: read those books, I I, I haven't read the latest. Install, I think he's on his like 15th or 20th installment of that series now. Yeah. Wildly successful series, but what it started out as was. You know he was the navy threw him in jail and uh, after he where he wrote his autobiography and then mm-hmm. they will throw you back in jail if you write any more nonfiction. He said okay so it's all right fiction and he did. Mm-hmm. But if you read those novels, what those are, are really just a recasting of the traditional detective story, mm-hmm. with this ex special forces operator. That's what they are trying to you know find out you know stop the bad guys before they get away with X, yes. and that is. Still, the, you know, if you to use your hypothetical situation in Moscow, the same dynamic would hold true of, I think it was Dashiell Hammett who wrote the essay of the evolution of the cowboy into the detective. Okay. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, it was something called like a literary evolution or something. I, I think it was Hammett who wrote the essay. I'm not sure, but I think it was. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how the cowboy is this, this archetypal, of, you know, literary. Character in, in American culture evolved uh, as the country increasingly urbanized. And uh, just just to not lose the, your question here, uh, that that thread, that 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 truth seeker, if you will, your journalist in Moscow, your investigator, uh, that is still. Really, even beyond the detective, beyond the cowboy, uh, that is simply the truth seeker. That's the the, the lone hero uh, going up, you know, with Herculean energy in the face of all odds. And this is this is really a mythic figure, but it's it's the truth seeker. And the truth seeker is the one who always who who does it for. I guess you know you could say this is part of our of the Socratic tradition. They want to find out because they want to know. Mm-hmm. Your investigator in Moscow wants to know. Your investigator in Moscow, unless he has backup, like the one I just described, probably has a very short life expectancy, given his subject matter yes. uh, and location. But uh, thats I can understand the impulse. And that impulse has a very, a very long and very time-honored literary pedigree. And here's hoping it stays alive
0: through the carnage to come. Yes, Adam, I greatly appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise and bringing to light this collection, Fractus Europa. Um, I I agree. I think this is an incredibly important work of fiction that unfortunately may not end up being fiction for long. And I'm grateful that you've put this out to us. Thanks for having me, Gavin. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been Adam Dunn, co-editor of the newly released collection Fractis Europa. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.